This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Do you feel like the values that you try to imbue your family with have changed at all since Trump was elected? I don't know if they've changed as much as I feel like perhaps I've just seen the importance of us continuing, like continuing to build our family and um, creating, especially in our home, just like a safe space for us to exist, like as a non-monogamous queer family. That's Margaret Jacobson, a writer, photographer, and member of an extraordinarily beautiful family. <laughs> this spring at Bitch, we're exploring the theme of family values as a term that has been co-opted by right-wing folks in the United States. In our media and in our politics, claims of, quote, family values are used to defend everything from repealing abortion access to backing transphobic bathroom bills to policing women's sexuality. You know, People use family values in a really narrow way. It means like this kind of retro shit. This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. Mother, too, changes from her daytime clothes. The women of this family seem to feel that they owe it to the men of the family to look relaxed, rested, and attractive at dinner time. Politicians use the framing of family values as essentially the political equivalent of this mom from The Simpsons. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? But what the hell? (laughs) Feminists have strong values, and we have strong families, too. Why do Republicans get a monopoly on defining what family values means? On today's episode, we're queering family values. For a lot of queer folks, the traditional concept of family is wrought with complicated feelings. A lot of blood families refuse to accept or celebrate queerness. So LGBTQ people have in many ways redefined family for themselves. On this episode, I talk with two queer feminist activists about what the word family means to them and what family values they try to live by and teach. Margaret Jacobson and Yasmin Nair are two amazing feminist writers and thinkers who have different ideas on what it means to have a family, what it means to get married, and how our ideas of family shape our ideas of the world. Listen in. Why don't you talk to each other? Why don't you talk to each other? Just give it a try. Why don't you talk about what happened? I know you're trying to avoid it, but I don't know why You might not believe it You might not believe it But you got a lot in common You really do You both love me and I love both of you Just kicking it off with a little relationship advice from Steven Universe. All right. Margaret Jacobson. Hi, um, I'm Margaret Jacobson. I'm a photographer and writer that lives in Portland. That's like selling it short a bit. Margaret is an awesome activist who organizes lots of events centering on race, gender and identity, including a regular self-care day for black women. Margaret is black and the Women's March in Portland in January. Proudly non-monogamous and also non-binary, Margaret's social media feed feels like a vision into a better, more gorgeous world. 
filled with kids and friends and loving partners who make time for each other and also make lots of good food together. I asked Margaret about being non-binary and using the pronoun they. I identify as non-binary, just meaning I don't really see myself on the gender binary. Um, and gender for me, I think I used to identify as gender queer, but or um, gender fluid. But since gender isn't something I personally believe in, then non-binary fits my identity a lot better. So to start it off, I asked Margaret, who's in your family? So I guess I would start with my ex-husband. Um, we live seven minutes from each other. Um, we do a lot of stuff together. We're just no longer married. And then I am engaged to my partner, Noah, and we live together. And then there is my partner that lives outside of the house, Pace. Yeah, so I would say there's, how many is that? Like six of us? <laughs> That's six, including Margaret's two kids, Riley and Beck who are seven and eight, and also extremely adorable. So Margaret has a strong family and also really strong values. But still, the phrase family values instantly induces some cringing. I think I'm one of those people that also gets really anxious (laughs) when people say that. And a lot of that is because of how I grew up, which was uh, very religious, very Christian, and family values were definitely like a mom and a dad that were married with kids. (laughs) And you like... It was just wholesome and whatever wholesome means. Um, Boring, I guess. But (laughs) is that what wholesome means? I don't know. Because I don't, I feel like I just don't know what wholesome, what people mean when they are saying that something is wholesome. I don't get it. I don't get what's not wholesome. Um, But I think for uh, me and for my partners, our family values are really centered around like compassion and like kindness um, and kind of like trying to have an infinite amount of love and capacity. Um, we have like an or- open door um, policy in our home and we're always trying to like host people and have dinners and just having the house always be full of people that are that are kind of our our chosen family. And I, growing up, I think that my parents tried really hard to like have family time and like family trips. Um, And I never felt like, I felt like they were trying really hard to fit into an idea of like what family is and doing it in a traditional way and traditional, I guess, simply meaning what is what society perceives as like the normal um it's what the majority is and i think as a kid all i really wanted was to be surrounded by a lot of people and to just share space and like food and time with people who i knew loved me and that i loved and my daughter has always been kind of like inviting everybody into her life if she meets you and she likes you she's like great you're welcome here you know, and we kind of all try to have that, like, mentality, and so I think that that's what our, like, family values are rooted in, is always having open arms, um, and no one gets, like, turned away, and there's no expectations to show up perfectly, it's like, show up as you are, 
and that's like enough. That's like all we want. How do you feel like your family is similar to the family you grew up in? And how is it different? Is there anything you've, you've taken from your, from, from your parents in a, in a good way or anything you've intentionally very much left behind? Um, I think that the cooking is something that I took um, because it was a thing that we would do with my mom. And it was, it felt like a really sacred time. And I know for her, like, she would tell us stories about cooking with her own, like, father. And, like, we do that around here a lot. Like, there's a lot of, like, cooking. And not just in my house, but in, like, my ex-husband's house. You all cook dinner together? Or what does it look like? Um, sometimes we cook dinner together. Sometimes, like, he'll make food and, like, bring it over here. Or we'll just make food and he'll come over. Um, and same with my partner, Pace, you know, we try really hard to do like a family dinner where everyone's there, where it's like all the partners, <laughs> including my ex-husband and like his partner and then the kids. And my parents were really good about having meals together every night. And we have to work really hard to do that just because I'm really busy and I... I don't see the importance of family meals, but my kids really, really love them. Like, I will sometimes be like, we can do it, you know, next week or something. I'm, like, writing and studying, whatever. And they get really excited about it. And it reminds me of, like, I was always really excited as a kid, too, to just, like, sit down with my family and us all be together because during the day we weren't always together. We're all over the place. And um, But other than that, I don't know... My parents really prided themselves on, like, taking us to church together. And they didn't like to play board games. And maybe we would watch movies together. And so I think with my kids, I try to make everything a family thing. Like, we all go outside and, like, play together. And we play a lot of board games. And we play magic. And we watch a lot of TV together. And we cuddle, like, every... Every weekend morning, it used to be every morning, but not so much now that they're in school. Um, and so it's just doing lots of little things and doing it together and making it, they get really excited and they ask for it all the time where it's like, can we do this as a family? And can we do this? You know, it's like, I'm going to the grocery store. Like, can we go as a family? <laughs> and so, yeah, um, I think that's what I do a little bit differently than my family did. How did your family get to be so adorable? <laughs> That's a real question. Like, I think a lot of people, um, you know, have very tense relationships with their partners and especially with their ex-partners and with their kids. You know, there's so in so many families, there's so much tension all around. And hearing you talk about your family just sounds like, in some ways, it's a bundle of love. And I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have problems, too. So... How like how like how do you manage conflict and how did how does it wind up being so sweet? I think that I would say therapy. <laughs> we do a lot of therapy or I'm just like a really big supporter of therapy. Um my like quickly like I was adopted when I was a baby and I've kind of just always been a very empathetic like sensitive person and I've always wanted just like a family of my own. And my kids are, like, my first blood relatives, which is crazy and, like, blows my mind. And then my ex-husband was, like, my first serious partner and, like, is my best friend. 
And so when we were talking about separating, it was a really long conversation about how do we preserve what we have because it's special. It's not a thing that we're just going to throw away because we shouldn't be together anymore. It's something that definitely should continue. And we did like couples therapy, which was great. And it helped us learn how to communicate better. And then we've just like implicated all of those things that we learned there. And now we do a family therapy with our kids. And that's really awesome. And we make sure that the four of us spend time together too. You mean your kids and your ex-partner? Yeah. So the kids and my ex-husband, but then also it was very natural for us when I started to be with my partner. The kids are very, they're just really excited to have more adults love them. (laughs) And so that's been really, I don't know, it's just been really nice. We're, We're all really good communicators and we all work really hard on our communicating. And... That was something I didn't know how to do as a kid. I didn't know how to advocate for myself or speak up for myself. And my kids do a really wonderful job of being like, I don't feel like this is for me or I want to do something different or this would make me feel better. And so we encourage a lot of that. And so I would say that that helps us (laughs) because we can... We can be really honest about our expectations. And I would also say that, like, non-monogamy has, like, helped us (laughs) with our communication and appreciating each other and trusting each other because you do have to work with so many people. And so it makes sense that those skills and tools would also apply to when you have children and ex-partners. It's not just limited to partners that you're romantic with. Um... But yeah, we have a lot of love and a lot of just like gratitude. And I would say that my daughter especially is like really good about bringing people together and loving people and appreciating them. And like when you're around her, you're like, oh my gosh, I want to be just like you when I grow up. <laughs> so so in a, in a similar way to how non-monogamy has, has shaped your family dynamics, how do you feel like queerness has shaped your family. Do you ever think about how your family would be different if you were binary and straight? I mean, I lived like that for a really long time. I mean, I think I always was like, I'm queer, but we didn't talk about it. And then they saw me just being married to their dad. Um, And so I think that... We were already very much like, you can be whoever you want to be, and we're good with it. But they definitely saw a very hetero example. And then now, I think I like the way that my kids view just, like, people and being attracted to people (laughs) when they talk about it. And it is so, like, what they're attracted to, who they really enjoy is so diverse And, you know, the other day my son was like, I don't think I'm gay, (laughs) but like kind of sad. And then, but also still being able to be like, but this man is really cute and this person's handsome and not feeling like shame or anything around it or embarrassed. Um, And a lot of our friends are non-binary. And so that's been really fun to have those conversations with my daughter 
where she's like, okay, I don't have to just be a girl forever. Like, I can be so many other things. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I don't know if we would have had those conversations necessarily. I can't tell. But I do think that I'm psyched that they're growing up in a house with, like, a queer parent. Kids have this way of looking at things where you explain it to them, they think about it, and then they're like, great. (laughs) Now can we go do this thing? You know, and they might have more questions, but they're not questions in the way where they're like, that's wrong. (laughs) And this is the right way. You know, it's more questions like, oh, how did you know? And why do you feel that way? They're like, uh, can we stop talking about gender and sexuality so we can go yeah, watch TV? Yeah, sometimes they're like, we know. Because <laughs> I'm like, let me turn this into a lesson. And they're like, we already know, Mom. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> so that's all That's all super positive. I'm wondering about how, um, how like, violence and, and fear affects your family in any way. I would think especially now with Trump in office, we're hearing a lot of homophobia. We're hearing a lot of, like, worries about people not being able to be with people they love and families getting broken up. Is that something that that affects your family in, in a significant way? I would say before that, we were already in a place of like, so my kids are mixed and I'm black and my dad is white. And for the last two years, we had been having a lot of conversations about violence between like, or from policemen on black men and women, and then particularly when Tamir Rice was killed. That was a really big deal for us. And, you know, that's when we told the kids, you you don't get to play with toy guns, like anything that looks like it could be used as a weapon, you don't get to play with. And so I think for my kids, they were already living with a certain reality and then they understand that there's also, yes, homophobia. I think to me and them, there's the thing of like, if a queer person is white, they're still white. And then we're still black. So even if we were straight, um, our skin color would still set us apart. Where do you guys find role models for your kids and for relationships is there especially in pop culture like our pop culture is pretty straight pretty white are there tv shows or movies or books that your kids love that you feel like represent your family or or people that you want them to be like we've been trying to get them more books with other kids of color in them (laughs) which is not it's it at first I was like, where are there these books? There are none. And then it's like, once you start finding them, you're like, wow, there's so many. Why aren't these in libraries? <laughs> or like, why aren't these at the school? And then I wouldn't, there isn't very much on like TV or in books about like non-binary people, non-binary couples. Um, th- there isn't very much about like polyamory, I guess, either. And if it is, I feel like we just can't relate to it. Like, we can't relate to, like, middle-class white people in, like, a triad where it's a man and, like, two women, you know, and they're still cis people. Um, but 
for my kids, I try to, I run like a black self-care day. And so they participate in that. I do like a black women's tea, black women like femme tea. And Riley, my daughter, participates in that as well. And I run like a discussion group um, where it's a mixture of people of color and white people. And we come and we talk about race and whatnot. And they're a part of that. And so we try to make sure that they're also, aside from like what they're reading or like watching, they're also around other people who are similar. And that's why, you know, we have this like, we live in this like huge house that's like always full of people. And we usually do like Friday night dinners for Shabbat. Um, my partner is Jewish. And that's always like other polyamorous people or non-monogamous people and like queer people and non-binary people. And there they also see like this example of what the world is like. And that is their world. Like these Friday night dinners, that's what their reality is. I feel like you've made such a beautiful universe for your kids. <laughs> trying. I know a, a lot of queer people have complicated feelings about marriage and you're getting married to your partner, Noah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the decision to get married and why that feels special to you and how it's complicated? Yeah. That's so funny because I am. Um, yeah, this is the second time I'm getting married. I loved being married the first time. But I know that we also got married under the guise of, like, we were both still, like, religious, and it feels differently this time. It feels like I get to make the choice. There's very few things that I believe in doing as, like, a ritual. <laughs> I was, like, not that kind of person. But this seems like one that I, I could invest in. And the fact that I'm going to, like, bring all of these people that I love and share in this, like... I guess, union with another human, which is crazy. Um, I'm really excited about the first time I got married, we eloped and it was awesome. And <clears throat> it was really intimate. And this time I feel like I'm making a really big choice and I'm making this choice in front of all of these people, <laughs> this commitment, and they're there. I think I always thought like, if I get divorced, I'll never get married again. And I'll just have like, a long time partner or something and when I met my partner within like a few months I was like I'm gonna marry you like you're a person that I would like to build a life with for hopefully the rest of my life and watch that evolve and you have you as my like anchor why does it feel important to you to get married what's what's the difference there I don't know I think that and I've been like thinking about that a lot and I know that it feels really important and I know I'm like really happy with my choice and like proposing to him um I think that and I and I think there's also like I I had this conversation with Noah actually the other day where I was like I actually don't want to ever not be partnered with you and I feel like making this, like, choice to do that is, like, me also committing to, like, putting in this, like, effort um, that I don't know if I would have done outside of that, which sounds really shitty. Um, but I think it's important to me to make this, like, commitment to this person that I think is the... I don't want to say my soulmate. I don't like that word. 
<laughs> What's wrong with soulmate? I just like don't know why. I'm really weird about words like soulmate and like lover. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, is it because you don't believe in souls or is it just too cheesy? I just like don't like the word. <laughs> I think souls are so real. <laughs> um, this is my person and I I and I, I have a lot of conversations with like other non-monogamous people and other like non-hierarchical people about this. And I do think that I've like found like my person and that I, I want to be married to them. There's a lot of critique of marriage of saying, you know, you can't, it, it's a, it's a patriarchal heteronormative institution. Yeah. You can't take it and make it your own. How are you trying to take it and make it your own? Or is it a moot point? Cause you're just like, fuck it. I don't th- so I do believe in things where it must be dismantled in order to um change but I also believe that some things have to be changed by doing them and I don't think that I am anyone that does uphold a lot of like I don't uphold patriarchy or at least I don't try to I think it's impossible for me to like fit into what is norm and so for me getting married is like I don't think that is me being like normal or upholding anything I think it's me making my choice because I was given a choice and there's also the part of me that like people who are black and white weren't always able to get married. Like, that's still such a recent thing. And that's something I also want to take advantage of. Like, that's not a thing I I take for granted at all. Being able to be with, like, my white partners, like, that's not a thing that I take lightly. And so that also, to me, is this, like, form of, like, resisting what is normal, I think, Like, maybe if I was, like, a white person who was, like, cis, then maybe I don't need to get married. But I'm not that. Um, You know, and it's, like, our whole wedding day, our whole wedding is, like, two days of just, like, celebration and just, like, ridiculous. And, you know, I'm getting married in, like, a suit and then changing into a gown and then also wearing a jumpsuit and we're having a crawfish boil and it's all these things that are just like us and celebrating who we are. I'm glad who you, I'm glad celebrating who you are involves a jumpsuit. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know. Like I don't know who I was before jumpsuits. Like I don't know how I was existing. You can follow Margaret and their whole beautiful family on Instagram and all the other places at Marge Jacobson. Next up, Yasmin Nair. As you may know, I do a lot of critiques of a lot of people and things, right? Um, And I take great care to be careful in my critiques, you know, and I do the same thing in my personal life, which is like, if I'm critical of someone, I'm not just going to throw mud at them. (laughs) I'm going to be like, this is why this is fucked up. (laughs) So, yep. That's her. Keep listening. As I lay upon my bed, I was trying to be patient and to think of what you said. 
Just a quick plug here, Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. If you didn't know, Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you liked today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know if you like the show in your order comments. Okay, on with the show. Yasmin Nair is a prolific writer whose work focuses on sexuality, queer theory, and critiques of capitalism. She's been particularly critical of the mainstream gay rights movement and the push for same-sex marriage. She's the co-founder of a group called Against Equality. Yasmin, who's originally from Calcutta, India, and now lives in Chicago, is just a fascinating person to talk to. One of those people who makes even a simple question really interesting and complicated. Like, I asked her the basic question of who she thinks of as her family. And she contested the very basic idea of family. Right. So in terms of, you know, I prefer to not think of it as a family unit, but I do think of myself as occupying and being part of a very strong uh, and in some cases, very old network of friends and familiars, including cats uh, and friends with cats and cats with friends. Um, but no, I think of it as a network of friendships, actually, uh, sort of a complicated inter, you know, net series of networks uh, that function a bit like, I guess, you know, the rings around Saturn. <laughs> I, that's how I think of my 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 people, my tribes. <laughs> So what do you think of reclaiming the word family? Why do you see yourself in a tribe or in a network of friendships or in a pile of cats, <laughs> but not in a family? Right. And for a lot of queers, I think, you know, reclaiming family is important. A lot of people will call uh, out to alternative families or families of choice, for instance. That's how they refer to them. You know, for me, um, I'm, also, I'm also a Marxist feminist. So for me, it's also be about being critical about the notion of a family as something that's very much implicated in a particular state apparatus, and to put it brutally, is mostly about collecting taxes. So I don't think of the family, you know, we tend to think of the family as a kind of naturally occurring, intimate configuration. And it's actually something that's very much socially, politically, and certainly economically constructed, uh, you know, in order to enable the state really to benefit the most. And it also enables a certain kind of patriarchy, as we all know, you know, the idea of the family always involves who is the head of the family, who are the, you know, the subordinates in the family, who's the breadwinner and so on. And I don't know, it's not that that cannot be quote unquote subverted, but it's just that I see it pointless to sort of even try to try and subvert a structure that has been with us for millennia and has been so troubling for women, children, queer people, anyone who's outside that uh, rigidly defined f idea of family. Yeah, when you think about it, friendships are a really um, powerful force. Like friendships, I feel like, are often discounted and devalued especially in comparison to blood relatives. I have noticed, especially in the United States, when I moved here, I did notice that a lot of people use the phrase, we're just friends. And I always thought, what do you mean just friends? Friends are the best. That's the most intense relationship. You know, your husband should be your friend. This is maybe too big of a question, but um, how do you feel like queerness impacts your idea of family? and the way you see those lifelong relationships. 
yes, it was very much a part of also defining friends and friendships in my life. Um, my friends and I who were all, when I was at Purdue in the 90s, we formed a very close-knit band of groups and we were very particular about defining ourselves as queer. This is also 1992 when, you know, around the time when queer theory was becoming a, a thing in the university. And I think queerness was very integral to that because what queerness, at least for us, as we were thinking through and theorizing it, not just in the text we were writing, but in our lives, was about, first of all, not hewing to the usual conventional boundaries of what was acceptable. So, for instance, queerness meant that you could be friends with somebody and perhaps have a sort of almost sibling relation. And I had this, you know, almost sibling kind of relationship with somebody, which might then shift into a quasi or a sexual relationship and then go back to being friendship friends without sex and then help each you know and, and at the same time be involved in um, helping each other um, figure out how to get this person they were interested in you might be interested in interested back in you and so on so does this what I think Quinn has really allowed us to do was to really think that you know relationships are very complicated and it's okay to be complicated whereas I think if we had been and that was that was very much a, a um, that was very deliberate on our parts. You know, we would say, well, I think in our relationships we were constantly asking each other, how do we how do we remain um, how do we remain connected to each other with a kind of integrity that is actually fundamentally queer, without screwing each other over, without of course hurting each other, but also being aware that. Queerness means that we get to test these boundaries of who you can be and who you can't be. So this is a show about family values. So what do you see as the core values that define your friendships? What are your friendship values, I guess? Well, one value would be, you know, um, that you stay friends with someone even when they're going through a terribly hard time or even when they're being complete assholes. <laughs> and I think that's also the test of a friendship. So there are people, for instance, in my outer ambit, uh, you know, who might... Are you allowed to use the word asshole on this? Can I, do I have to change it? <laughs> no, we call people assholes all the time. Uh, so I think one, uh, you know, I mean, I have been very different kinds of people over the years, um, people have stuck with me, the same as I hope is true of, of my relationships with them. So I think one one uh, feature of how one defines a friendship and how one sustains it is to see people through very hard times, even when they're being very hard on you. So that's really important because what matters is that relationship that you've had with them for a long time, the relationship that actually makes the two of you, right, who you are. Uh, and that evolves. I think was also, I think really for me also, what makes friendship in a way more dynamic than family, where a lot of people simply feel that they have to stick with someone because blood, because related. Let's talk about your thoughts on marriage. So you've published a lot of writing about queer critiques of marriage, and in part, it's because it involves relationships with a capitalist state that you say is exploitive at its core. So 
how has your thinking on marriage evolved? How do you think of marriage these days now that it's legal for all LGBT people in the United States, thanks to the Supreme Court's decision about three years ago on the Defense of Marriage Act? I think the problem with marriage has always been that it is a sign of the neoliberal times overtaking us. So when gay marriage did not become legal because people thought, oh, these sweet, sad gay couples just need to be happy and have children and all of that. Gay marriage became legal because it helped make the neoliberal state stronger. So what do I mean by that? Neoliberalism is fundamentally about the privatization of resources. I mean, there are longer arguments to be made about what it is and so on. But in essence, it is about privatizing resources like education, healthcare, housing, uh, even water, for instance, that should actually be given over to the public. But these things have increasingly over the last 40 odd years become severely privatized. So what gay marriage did was to actually mark a change even in the gay community where in the 90s, for instance, at the, towards, you know, during the AIDS crisis, gay people were marching, queers were marching for universal health care as a response to the AIDS crisis, as a response to the fact that people were literally dying because hospitals would not take care of them. So forget about health care. What happened in the 90s is you saw the gay communities pivoting around after AIDS became a quote-unquote manageable crisis for mostly wealthier, mostly gay, and mostly white gay men. And then you saw a movement towards marriage. And the argument there became, well, if we can get married, we can get our partners on our health care, right? So... What gay marriage represents is the ultimate privatization of something like as essential as healthcare, and along with it, things like citizenship. So you have the argument that, and which they've won, that gay people should be able to get their married partners into the country for citizenship, right? So in that sense, um, and so it's no surprise, for instance, that in the in, in Britain, where they've had they've had for many years a national health service. In Britain now, as that weakens, there's a rise in support for gay marriage, which is all, again, about the privatization of healthcare. So all of that is no no surprise. So that's my fundamental critique of gay marriage. It's not so much that it represents a cultural or social assimilation, but that it represents, that it is a movement that has helped become a vital cog for neoliberalism and the privatization of resources. I think a lot of feminist people feel that way, like really conflicted about the institution of marriage and building their basic family unit around marriage. In the United States, at least, marriage is such obviously a messy institution that matches together like tax law, healthcare policies, romantic love, economic history, monogamy. Like, is there anywhere that you see relationships that are defined in a way that resonates with you more? Like examples of where you say, ah, yeah, that works. Well, you know, in uh, in much of, you know, in, in Scandinavia, for instance, uh, in places like Sweden and Norway, it doesn't really matter whether you're married or not. The same is true of Canada. So for me, it's not so much about relationships. It's about what do people expect and what do they get from the state? Um, so in Canada, for instance, when gay marriage became legal, 
a lot of Canadian gays just shrugged their shoulders and went on their way. You see, they didn't have to get married. It didn't make a difference to them. People didn't have to get married because of healthcare issues. The same is true uh, you know, in places like Sweden and Norway where uh, men and women get leave for childcare, for pregnancy and so on. Um, the system is, it works for everyone. So you don't have to affirm yourself as some sad gay person or some marvelously fruitful married couple. You don't, have, you don't have to move through this affective register to prove your worth as a human being to get something as basic as health care or, for that matter, education. These issues around marriage and who has the right to be married... Um, so much of it comes down to rights in our society and how certain rights, especially around taxes and health care in the United States, are only given to people who are married. But on the other hand, a lot of queer people have pushed back on that and said that marriage is something that's really important and worth fighting for and, and worth defending the right to get married. Weddings can be beautiful expressions of love and especially are a statement of happiness and joy and celebration of relationships that are so often demeaned. So... I know a lot of queer feminists have problems with marriage, sure, but still want to get married themselves. How do you talk to the friends in your life who want to get married about that choice and those tricky feelings? Um, I have been the official wedding photographer <laughs> at Friends Unions, so I don't have any problem with that at all. You know, my attitude about marriage is simply, again, this is about individuals. Fine, if you as a person feel that marriage means something to you and I love you enough, um, I'll be there. And that's different. My response to all of them is, it's one thing to say that personally, on an individual level, for me, this is what marriage means. That's fine. What I don't like is when you fight for the system to become such that only married people like you can access the benefits. So that's different. You know, in Sweden, people do get married, not as often as here, perhaps, but they do get married in, in, in very different ways. Um, but it's, you know, for one thing, no, I don't think any, I'm not sure any other country has quite the marriage industrial complex that we have here. Uh, it's really quite ridiculous. But, you know, it's one thing to have an emotional and affective tie to marriage. That's fine. I really don't care about that. But for me, what matters again is, what are you and what are we fighting for in terms of the benefits, the, the basic fundamental rights that people should have, regardless of whether or not they're married? So I really don't have a problem with people wanting to be married. Friends of mine are married, um, and that's fine with me. You know, there's a difference between an individual personal choice and how you fight for that personal choice to become the system-wide choice that everybody then has to sign on to. There's no right way to have a family. That's what's cool about the idea of reframing family values, that there can be a diversity of values and families can look all sorts of ways. Too often, families that don't fit a narrow, old-school idea of respectability are seen as bad. In so many ways, our society sends the message that in order to have a, quote, good family, you need to have two monogamous, wealthy, married parents Two kids would be ideal. Everybody gets along harmoniously. But life is messier than that. And that's good. 
Whether your family is made of friends or made of many lovers or made of a husband and kids, you can form your own values and live by them. Having a strong family that looks just the way you want it to is actually a powerful act of resistance. Hey, thanks for listening to the show today. Our episode was produced by Alex Ward of Sounds Like Pictures. If you're looking for a transcript of this show, you're in luck. Cheryl Green of Storyminders transcribes all propaganda episodes. The transcript is available on our website, bitchmedia.org. We're proud to make the podcast accessible to people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. Please feel 100% encouraged to send me ideas, feedback, and criticisms on the show. I'm Sarah with an H at b-word.org. I'd love to hear from you. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. We're an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization that's entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you learned something new on today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know that you liked the show in your order comments. We read through them all and they make us feel so special. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye.